0: Last week I was out driving around in my wife's car, and uh, as I was driving I heard a pop, and then I felt the car start uh, chugging along. Of course, uh, when that happens, you know what's going on. Uh, The tire was blown out. Unfortunately, I was not on the freeway driving along. That could have been very disastrous. I was actually fairly close to home, so I, I ended up just driving home, and you know how that sound goes? It goes, clunk, 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 whatever. You can make up your own noise, but you get the picture. It's out of ordinary. Uh, but something else that's out of ordinary, too, is when you don't have a normal spare, you have to put on that little donut tire. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I called Triple A up because I didn't want to change the tire myself. Uh, they open up the back end of the car, and, and you find a little spare that's about the size of a saucer. Uh, somehow, I don't really know why they make spares like that, but somehow if you put that spare on, it actually fits and your car works a little bit. And uh, it takes the place of a tire until you can get your regular one fixed or a new one put on. At any rate, it's uh, similar in a sense. Not, no, there's no tire changing going on here, but it's similar in the sense of this. Just as that spare is sort of like a tire, it's obvious that it's out of place, right? You don't want to drive around town cruising along with that little saucer wheel. It looks awkward and it drives awkward and it's just not meant to be that way. It's a tire, but it's not the right one. It's out of place. Now, now, if we can just take that analogy and apply it here to what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 11, it's similar. He says, you're having a supper. Yeah, you're having dinner. Yeah, you're eating. Yes, you're consuming some of the actual elements that are a part of the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper. In fact, you see Paul say that himself in verse 20. He says, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Paul isn't saying you're not trying to have the Lord's Supper. Oh, they certainly were. They were intending to have the Lord's Supper. But he's saying you're having a supper, but it ain't the Lord's Supper. It's not the right one. It's a supper, but it's out of place. It's a supper, but it doesn't fit the intended purpose for which it was given, it's awkward only that, it's not what God commands. It's not the kind of supper. It's not implemented according to the standards of the Lord. That's the big issue that's being dealt with here, and we'll explain why Paul says what you're having is a supper, but not the Lord's. Let's begin by uh, working our way into the passage by seeing, first of all, Uh, In verse 17, as we go uh, into working our way into the problem, uh, we see here that it's a worship problem. It's a worship problem because Paul says in verse 17, uh, I don't praise you because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Paul is not uh, critiquing their dining habits or uh, their, uh, their practice of eating ordinary meals. He's critiquing... Their worship, And he's critiquing a specific aspect of their worship, the way they conduct themselves at the Lord's Supper. And we know this about worship because that verb there, come together, is about a coming together for worship. We know that because the very same verb is used over in uh, 1 Corinthians 14.23 when he says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together... And then he goes and talks about some things they're doing, speaking tongues and so forth. Um, Obvious there it's a worship situation. That's the same verb when he says when you assemble together. It's used multiple times in the context to refer to coming together for public worship. So we know that what we're dealing with In verse 17 and following is public worship. Now, the other thing that's interesting here that the Apostle Paul says, you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. I don't want to spend a lot of time in there, but tucked in there is this implication that when we come together for worship, it is to be for our good and not for the worse. It's to be for a blessing. It's to be for edification. It's to build us up. Now, that doesn't mean that worship is primarily about us because it's not. Worship is about God. Worship is about His praise, His adoration, His glory. Our coming to Him to bring His praises, to bring our offerings and our spiritual sacrifices to Him. But in the context of doing that, it's just so arranged that when we come to bring worship that God has commanded in the way that He has commanded, there is a blessing unto us. It is for the better for us. But what Paul is saying here, and that's the clear implication, is that when you bring worship to God in a way that He hasn't commanded, it's not good for you. Now, just to test that out and to see what the Apostle means... You just skip down to verse 30 and you can see what the worst is. He says, for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. You see what he's saying? Your false worship practices have led you to receive a false... Affliction from God and affliction in the form of physical illness and sleep here, almost all commentators degree, agree, is a euphemism for death. You see, God takes worship seriously. Even if we don't. Even if we don't. God still takes His worship seriously. God will not be mocked by false worship And the best of our intentions, which are not grounded in His Word. So Paul says, Your worship is a problem. I got a problem with you. Yes, you're worshiping, but it's the wrong way of worship. And it's not for your good, it's for the worse. Let's see what's going on in verse 18. He says, When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. There are divisions. The first thing we see about their worship and the way they're doing it is it's causing division. The word there is schisms. That is, they come to church and they line up on opposite sides. Instead of being one, they're divided into two parts. You see, they're in opposing groups. And that tells us that there's a real problem because church isn't supposed to be that way. We'll talk about that in a minute. But church isn't supposed to be that way. There isn't supposed to be one side of the church and the other side over here. And we're working at cross purposes and we're in opposition. Now the church is the time for us to experience a profound oneness in Jesus Christ. He says, so when you come together, there are divisions. And what that means is unfolded now in verses 20 and 21. He says, when you meet together, there's that verb again that we had just right up there in verse 17. When you come together for worship, he says, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Then verse 21, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper. First, one is hungry, the other is drunk. we got we to talk about that. Uh, he says, you're trying to eat the Lord's Supper, but it turns out what you're doing isn't the Lord's Supper. What does he mean? I think that what we have to see here is uh, something that was going on in the New Testament church. And that is when uh, they conducted the Lord's Supper in some places, it appears that they did it within the context of sort of a potluck dinner. And the reasons for that are, are various. One, one reason why that may have happened is because the Gentiles were used to uh, having a meal at a sacrificial feast as part of their religious service. So if they took the sacrifice down to the temple, they would either eat it there in the temple precincts or they would bring it back to their house and they would eat together and that eating together uh, constituted a religious ceremony, a religious service and a religious worship. And so they may have been importing their pagan ways of worshiping into the church of God when it came down to this business of celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's also very possible that the Jewish influence, because of the Passover, may have also been a part of this. Because you remember that the the Passover was a family meal. It was a sacrament of the Old Testament, but it was celebrated within the context of the family, in the home. And you even remember that the Lord's Supper was instituted in the context of celebrating the Passover. It could be that that practice there sort of uh, seeped over into the practice of the church in some places. And so what we see here is that this is a meal going on. And uh, probably what happened is that the the person who offered to host worship in their home, and remember now, they don't have big worship buildings and worship centers and auditoriums. Early church, they worshipped in people's homes. Those homes, no doubt, were almost primarily the homes of wealthy people because poor people didn't have homes that were big enough to worship in. So what happens is that the person who uh, offered to host the worship sort of organized a potluck meal, and within the context of that potluck meal, they began to eat. But the problem is the very way they celebrated the sacrament in that potluck meal caused divisions. It caused opposition. It caused the dividing up into groups. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, first of all, because the very uh, physical location in which they worshipped. Uh, archaeologists have done uh, great uh, work in excavating the ruins of old Corinth. And what they have found is that in the structure of the homes of the wealthy, there were two major rooms within the house. Uh, there, was an inner, uh, there was an inner place where... Uh, is something like a dining room where you could probably fit a large table and 10 to 12 people around it. And that dining room would have had sort of windows looking out into what's called the atrium, which was a much larger room which would sort of have been the spillover, the overflow room. And so when a rich person had guests over to their house, they invited the important people to sit at the table and everybody else got to sit at the kids' table out in the atrium. You remember that in your holiday meals probably. If you were old enough to sit at the table, you got to sit at the kids' table. It wasn't nearly as fun most times. Um, And when you sit at the kids' table, you get served last, and people sitting at the table end up eating most of the food, and so you don't get as much to eat. Now, here's what was happening within that context then. Uh, we learned that the wealthier people in the congregation were invited to sit inside the dining room. The poorer people, and that's the second thing that helps us understand this passage, the poorer people were left to, see, to be seated outside and to experience the Lord's Supper outside of that room in the atrium. Now that gives us uh, help and understanding then what Paul says in verse 21. He says, in eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and another is drunk. Now this is probably hyperbole. Paul is probably not actually saying there are people sauce when they're taking the Lord's Supper. I doubt it. It could have been, but I probably would I, I would read it in a little bit different light. I would say it's it's overstating the case for dramatic effect. But the point is this the people who were sitting inside the dining room were eating up all of the food, while the poor people who are sitting at the children's table were either not getting anything at all. Or just a teeny bit. Now, you can see why now the Apostle Paul rebukes them. He says, You're getting together for the Lord's supper, but it turns out it's not the table of the Lord, it's the table of selfishness. It's the table of selfishness, and worse yet, it is the table of reinforced class and social distinction. In other words, what's happening is that the social distinctions which were operative in the community of Corinth were now being reinforced in the church. It's as if they walked into uh, the house of meeting for the worship of God... And one group of people were given name tags that said that they are to be honored and to be revered and had a special, unique status and class within the church. And the rest of the poor people were set out here and they were sort of given the name tag and they were branded as the kind of people who should be treated with contempt and no dignity and no reverence and no love and concern at all. See, that's the problem. That's the problem that the Apostle Paul is attacking. He says, because you're doing it that way, you are violating the very essence of the supper. By your discrimination and your poor treatment uh, of these uh, lower class individuals who are Christians, you are distorting the meaning and the purpose of the Lord's Supper, which is to manifest our oneness in Christ. And to be a time when we together commune with Jesus and together become built up in Him. Now that's going to lead me to uh, pause and make some application for a moment. And the application is this, is that the social distinctions which are operative in the world around us are to be checked at the door of the church when we come together for worship as God's people. It doesn't matter at all what you are out in the world. You could be, uh, you could have the lowest status and the lowest job in society. I don't know if you ever watched that thing on, I think it's a learning channel, where the guy goes out and uh, it's called Dirty Jobs. And, and he he uh, he goes and videotapes and works among these people who have what are considered the jobs that nobody would ever want to do. Uh, You may you might be somebody who works at one of those dirty jobs, and yet when you come to church, you are on equal footing with the most wealthy, the most elite, the most high in status person in the church. There's no distinction. Because we're one in Christ. And I didn't make those rules up, by the way. Uh, The word of God tells us that we are all one in Christ. The Word of God actually tells us that there is no more bond or free, there's no more rich or poor, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no white or black, there's no people who drive Mercedes and the other who drive Kia's, there's no people who wear Gucci and the other wear rings. It doesn't matter. Come the church. You're one. You're in Jesus. You see, the the, the New Testament church had a big problem with this because you can already see it in the the book of Acts. Just as the church is unfolding early on in its development, you find that there is uh, this class warfare in this race distinction going on within the church. It caused an enormous blow-up, Acts chapter 6, uh, where we find out that the Jewish widows, who are now believers, were getting the overwhelming proportion of the church's goods, and the Grecian widows were left with nothing. And it was such a big deal, it almost blew up the church the book of James we find out about these uh, class warfares and class distinctions within the church as well, uh, where James condemns them because what was happening is that they would escort uh, the rich people to the very front row and give them the best seat in the house, and then they would cause the poor people to either sit at their feet or in the back of the room. You see, for some reason, the church then and throughout history and to this day has to keep battling this sinful problem with importing the social and class distinctions of the world into the church and forming groups and cliques and privileged statuses for people in order to divide the church up. And what that does is it distorts the purpose and work of Christ. You see, uh, if Christ died for the person who has the lowest social status and job in the world, that tells you that person is valuable. Because Christ's blood is worth infinite value. There's not multiple levels of... Of Christ's blood, as if, well, he shed his blood. Yet some some of the blood he shed was for uh, the, the the people down here, and then some of the blood was a little bit better and it's for middle class people, and then he had a little bit of blood for the people who are at the top, and that's really good blood. And because it's really good blood, it makes them extra special. That's the, that's the way they're pretending here, and that's the way it often happens in the church, and I gotta tell you right now, nothing makes me angrier than when I see that happen in the church. When clicks and groups of the privileged people with their high status stand in their small little circles and share their uh, little stories and refuse to interact with the rest of the people who are, they think, below them. And maybe, just maybe, uh, when they're walking by the brother or sister at church, they might smile or laugh or, or occasionally give a hello. You know, just to reinforce that they're better than everybody else. It's ugly, it's disgusting, it's dishonoring to God, it's contrary to the purposes of the blood of Jesus Christ, and yet it happens all the time in the church. Pitiful. Jesus died for His people. His blood is precious, and that means that everyone He died for is equally precious in His sight. And if everyone that He dies for is equally precious in His sight then God's people must never allow those distinctions to take root in the church, or to be manifest in the church, or cause divisions in the church. That's why we have the name here, All Saints. It is for the purpose of reinforcing the fact that all who are elect, and all who are the recipients of the blood of Jesus Christ, are equally welcomed in this church it is intentional because what we want to do is to say that this body ought to reflect the multi-ethnic statuses of our community and the multiple social class statuses around us this church ought to be a place that is open to all and a place where all are equally welcomed and equally loved Because they're precious in God's sight. So Paul sees this problem happening where these class distinctions are reinforced, the poor are being oppressed, the rich are exalting themselves and patting themselves on the back, and Paul says, you're wrong. You have supper, but it's not the Lord's. Now, to clarify uh, what's supposed to happen, the Apostle Paul now, uh, in the second point, brings about the correction. That's verse 23 through verse 25. And what Paul is doing here is uh, he's, with that four... He's looking back to the previous verse and saying, okay, you're doing it wrong, you're having a supper, you're calling it the Lord's. It's not, here's how to correct it. He says what you need to do is follow the procedure of the Lord's Supper, the real Lord's Supper, the one that was instituted by Jesus Christ while he was on this earth. So the Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord and I passed on to you. That's very important. Paul says he received from the Lord. The Lord directly communicated this to him by special supernatural revelation. Paul was not there as a witness. We know that. Paul um, did not read about it in the book somewhere. And nobody told Paul. Paul says, Jesus, the Lord, delivered it to me. And what he is doing by that is saying, I'm, I am calling down now the Lord's authority to correct your false practice.'" It's not me. It's the Lord who says, this is how it's done. And then he reminds them that he has already delivered this to them. He's already made it a matter of public record. He has already instructed them in the proper way of partaking the Lord's Supper. And they are violating those standards of the Word of God. They've set up their own. He said, that's wrong. So he appeals to the Lord's Supper and the Lord's revelation that was communicated to him. And he says, here is the procedure for observing the Lord's Supper. We are not going to spend much time on this. So I really want to deal with the implications of this. But he says, here's how you do it. You take some bread and you take some wine. Those are your elements. Not barbecued chicken or whatever it is that you like. Uh, you take bread and you take wine. And he says, here's how Jesus did it. He gave thanks, he broke it, he passed it out, and he distributed it to all, and they all communed together. And Paul says you to do this in a decent and orderly fashion. This is not a trip down to hometown buffet. This is not a backyard barbecue. This is worship, and it is to be done in decency and in order just as Jesus did it. You call down thanks upon the elements. You consecrate them from an ordinary to a special sacramental use. You break the bread and you distribute. You pour out the cup of the wine and you distribute it. And the people take together. That's communion. Paul says, get it right. How you celebrate this institution of the Lord matters to God. And it matters to you. Because if you do it wrong, he says... It's not for your better. It's for the worse. Now, what I said I wanted to deal with here this morning are the implications. The implications. You can see here that Paul says, All right, I'm going to straighten out your practices, which he does with twenty three through twenty five, by delivering them the revelation of the Lord to him, and then he gives a series of applications. In view of this standard practice which God, the Lord, had communicated to him, he says, this is what you need to understand about the supper. Verse 26, the very first thing. Now we're into implications. If you're keeping notes, we're at our third point this morning. The implications. First thing. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He comes. As often as you partake of the consecrated bread, the consecrated wine, in the very way that Jesus has prescribed, He says when you do this, when, when you pray over it, when you break it, when you pour out the cup, when you follow the sacramental actions of the supper, what the Apostle Paul says, all of that amounts to the preaching of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying, when you do this in Christ's way, it is a visible proclamation of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the grace that is proclaimed and communicated and received in the supper is identical to the grace and the gospel that is proclaimed in the preaching of the word. That's why communion is a means of grace. Because communion is about a proclamation of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross, which is at the foundation of our salvation. And communion, then, is our participation in that death. And what kind of a death is it? That that is essential and foundational to understanding the importance of this. What kind of a death is it? Well, Paul tells you, he doesn't uh, flesh it out, but, but he makes it clear. Verse 24, he says, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. It is a, it is a substitutionary death. That's important for understanding communion properly and for being a means of grace. It's a substitutionary death. What does that mean? It means that Jesus, the Son of God, became incarnate and he went to the cross in our place. He stood in our place for us. Just as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the wonder of the cross. You were dead in your sins. Rebellious, displeasing to God, in opposition to His will. Uh, acting contrary to His purposes, transgressing His commandments, uh, the wrath and curse of God abiding upon you, and Jesus came down and became incarnate and died in your place. While you were a sinner, while you were thinking the wrong things, doing the wrong things, behaving the wrong way, shaking your fist in the face of God, worshiping your idols, living for yourself and your own glory and your pleasure and your satisfaction, Jesus died in your place. What that means is unfolded more Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. We're told that in order to redeem us from the law Christ took upon himself the curses of the law. That's what it means now. Unfolding it just a bit more this language of substitution is basically saying whenever you break God's law it brings with it a curse. Every single time you violate one of God's commandments, it brings upon you a divine, eternal curse, which means that God must punish you for your sins eternally. If you take that out of the picture, the gospel really doesn't have any punch to it. That's the whole point of sin. If you break God's law at one single point, you are guilty of violating God's commands And you are a recipient of his eternal curse. And Jesus came to the cross and he took all of those curses upon himself for all that sin you were doing when you were apart from Jesus Christ. He took it all upon himself. And what happened as a result of that is the wrath of God was propitiated. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse thirty five. Or three, verse thirty five, he says, or twenty five. He said, God set forth Christ publicly as a propitiation of His blood. In other words, that that blood that was shed at the cross, that death of Christ there, satisfied God's anger. So He's no longer angry at us. He's no longer holding us accountable. He's no longer seeing us as objects of His wrath, which must experience eternal judgment. That's what the death is about. Jesus stood in our place as a substitute. The other indication we get here about the meaning of the death is found in verse 24, or the 25, when Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' death ratifies and inaugurates the new covenant. And we know what the New Covenant was all about because Jeremiah the prophet prophesied of it centuries before Christ ever came and shed his blood. And he said the New Covenant is all about this. God would forgive the iniquity of his people and remember their sin no more. So when Jesus said this blood is the blood of the covenant, he's saying I have come now to inaugurate that covenant which Jeremiah prophesied of. That covenant which consists in God forgiving me of my sins forever and ever. That's the death which the Lord's Supper proclaims when we practice it as Christ commanded. When we follow the order which Christ instituted, it visibly proclaims Christ's death. It makes us partakers of that death of Jesus Christ. And so when you partake of the bread and the wine this morning, you are first of all seeing the death of Christ acted out in front of you. And second of all, you are literally participating in that crucified Christ. That one who has stood in your place and experienced Divine wrath, so that God could engraft you into His covenant and forgive you of your sins. You are literally eating the forgiveness of your sins this morning. This is no religious meal. This is no external, uh, mystical, religious experience where we just go through the motions of some sort of ceremony, walk away. Of feeling good because it was sort of religious. It's a it's a real participation in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was crucified for our salvation. That's why you can't that's why you can't treat people like that, at the supper Paul says. This is why you can't have a disorderly supper. Second thing that he draws out. Twenty seven therefore Okay? Therefore, obviously, uh, what he's saying now is based upon justice, what, what he's just said. In view of the fact that the Lord's Supper must must be uh, practiced and observed in the way that Christ has commanded, and in view of the fact that the Supper is a visible preaching of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, therefore... Therefore what? Whoever eats or drinks the bread... Or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And the $64 question here is, what is an unworthy manner? Well, I think it's obvious. All you gotta do is look at the context. What is, what, what is it about the Corinthian uh, partaking of this supper that constituted it being unworthy? What made it unworthy? And there were two things that made it unworthy. First of all, it wasn't done as Jesus commanded. And two, because it wasn't done as Jesus commanded and turned into this occasion where these class distinctions are reinforced and the poor are discriminated against and the rich have elevated themselves to this super elite status where they get to form their own group causing division in the church, they're eating in an unworthy manner. So you asked me this morning, what is an unworthy manner? And I would say the unworthy manner is to partake of the Lord's Supper when it's administered in a disorderly fashion, and it's to partake in the Lord's Supper in such a way that you are reinforcing class distinctions in the church. That you are acting in a bigoted or racist or discriminatory manner. That's it. That's what an unworthy manner is. If you are if you are treating people in church with contempt every Sunday and you've decided that that your group stands on the far end of the church and just sits there all by itself week after week after week. Treats everybody else with contempt. Doesn't show any love. Never goes out of your way to bless anybody. It's just all about you. You being selfish. You just taking it all in for yourself and your little group has your time to reinforce your sense of self-worth. You are communing in an un. Worthy manner You see people who Sit around at church every week For no other purpose Than to discourage other people to be critics of everything that's going on in the church, who are cynics, who are self-absorbed people, who don't lift a finger to be a blessing to anybody at any time who can't go five minutes without causing controversy in the church. You, if you're like that, are eating in an unworthy manner. You say, why is it unworthy? Is it really that the Lord just sort of like a divine bureaucrat? who just wants everything to be arranged in this little orderly way just because he's fastidious about the details? When God says to do something, you better do it exactly like he says. I would never challenge that, first of all. It's his prerogative. He wants to be a bureaucrat in that sense. But that's not the issue. The issue is this. To partake in that way is to work in a way that is contrary to the purpose of the cross. That's the problem. That's what makes it unworthy is because your action is contrary to the purpose of the cross. See, the cross didn't just have a a vertical dimension to it, which was about propitiating the wrath of God for our sins. The cross has a horizontal dimension. It unites us together in Jesus. It makes us one in Him. We are crucified with Him. We together are made partakers of His glorious life. And when that happens, there can't be any more division in the church. can't. Paul talks about this harmonizing purpose of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2. Tells us what uh, these practical implications of Christ's work are for us within the church. He says, He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, abolishing in His flesh the enmity which is in the law and the commandments contained in the ordinances so that He Himself might make the two into one new man establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Who are the people? The people are Jews and Gentiles, which basically represent the entire world. There's Jews and everyone else. And they were at enmity. Paul says the purpose of the death of Christ is to unite the world of the elect into one body. Into one new man. And the consequence is peace. So, if you act like you are too good to be a blessing to people at church, if you act like you are too good to interact with the total body of Jesus Christ, if you act like you're so good you can only interact with a certain group of people who you consider are the elite or whatever, what you're saying is that the rest of the people in the church ought to be held in contempt. You're dividing the body. You're eating in an unworthy manner. You see, what this is all about is that the gospel really has to change you. The gospel must really be worked out in your whole life. The gospel is not merely a set of theoretical, abstract, philosophical ideas. The gospel is just not a set of checkpoints that we give a set to. You see, Paul already said, you know, I'm not criticizing you for your doctrine, it's your practice. You see, the gospel has to change you inside out. It has to affect your whole life. And one way it practically affects your life, and you can see its effect, is do you love anybody? That's how you can tell. Do you love anybody? Do you love God's people? Do you have any desire to be a blessing to them? Or is it always just about you and your self-interest? You see, the Gospel really is supposed to change. It's supposed to make you compassionate towards people. It's supposed to make you kind. It's supposed to make you stop and, and listen to people and to grieve with people and to pray for people and to love people and to show hospitality to people and to encourage people. You know, if it's not doing that to you, you got to you, you got to stop and ask this morning, have I understood it at all? See, the point of it is if Jesus dies for you and He sacrifices for you and He takes the wrath of God for you, it has got to change you. Yes, it gives you a new status. Yes, it's about your justification. But it's got to change you. How can you you embrace the most loving act in history and then say, I'm going to continue on to my selfishness. I'm going to make Christianity and church just about me. It's sad to say the church today caters to selfishness. Almost like at no other period in the history of the church, the church today caters to selfishness, and it says to you, "You are entitled to ask one question of any church you go to: How does it benefit me?" See. You, you are given that impression by everything that's going on around you in the church world today. And Paul says, you got it wrong. This is the question you're to ask. How can I benefit them? We're not consumers. We're not consumers. And see, if we are partaking of the Lord's Supper in that way, we're partaking it in an unworthy manner. And Paul says, if you do that, You're guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Just tuck that away in your thinking this morning. Ask yourself, are you unworthy? Do you care? Do you attempt in any way to show love and be a blessing to God's people? Are you internalizing the gospel and working its way out in your life? Do not. If you're using church for selfish purposes, wrong. It's unworthy. Third thing, Self-examination. Paul says, A man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. to examine himself. I want to just pause on that and just say this verse so often gets so distorted that it makes people so scared that they are terrified to ever come to the table of the Lord. Literally, I know this is true. There are some Reformed churches that scare people so badly with this verse that 90% of the church will not commune because they have taught that this examination is so excruciating and so exacting that if you're not meeting its standards, you should not come to the table because if you do, all you're going to do is bring down judgment upon yourself and the congregation. And so it's sad but true in some of these places. You'll see four or five people go forward, and usually they are people who are advanced in years, and the rest of the congregation sits. Because they have been taught that this self-examination process is nothing less than this piercing, painful, searching process that if you don't measure up, you're not, you're not welcome here. Well, I've got to tell you this morning, people of God. That's 100% wrong. Self examination is clarified by verse 29. Paul says, He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. In other words, what Paul was saying, here's the self examination. What do you think this bread stands for? That's the examination. The examination is to not look inside your heart and find that long laundry list of terrible sins about yourself Saying, oh, I better stay away from the table. It's about asking, do you know what the bread is? It's not potluck meal. It's the body of Christ when eaten by faith. What is the wine? It's the new covenant in my blood. To take the wine, to drink of the cup, is to participate in the blood of Christ. To take the bread and the wine is to say, I understand that's not just bread and wine when I receive it by faith. It's to say, I am being united to Jesus Christ in His death on the cross. That's the examination. That's it. That's what it is to judge the body. That's what it is to examine self. In other words, what it's saying here is when you come forward for the sacrament this morning, what is it that you're after? Now, obviously, no one's coming here to take this to have their their appetite satisfied. I mean, a little crumb of bread and a thimble full of wine is not going to do nothing. We're not having the same problem. The Corinthians were. They made a whole meal out of it. Point as saying you better distinguish between what's going on here and, and, and this other stuff that you're doing. Uh, this is just not ordinary, it's not just a religious exercise. And by the way, it, you, you cannot have an empty presence view of the sacrament, take it rightly. You can't have this symbolic view and make it all about your profession of the world, your testimony, and it's just a memorial. You don't really believe anything's going on. That's not examining the body. That's wrong. It's to come to this table and to grab hold of that bread and to grab hold of that cup and say, I need the blood of Christ. I need to be united to his crucified body more and more so that his life may fill me. And so that I may experience intensification and my union with him. And so that I may again and again and again and again enjoy the forgiveness of my sins. That's why you come here. That's the self-examination. It's not this brutalizing process where you walk away feeling so discouraged because of the guilt of your sins that you don't feel like you can partake of the sacrament until you're on your deathbed. That's not right. The Corinthians were treating it as if it was just a regular meal. Paul saying, you better discern the body. Better come to the table realizing what it is. It's communion with Jesus Christ. And if you understand that, that is going to govern the way you partake of the meal. If you really believe when you eat that bread and drink that wine in faith through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're communion with Christ, it's going to affect everything. You're meeting with Jesus. You're partaking of Jesus. That is a mystery that is so awesome. It's so beyond words to describe. That's what it is to examine. And if we don't do that, Paul leaves us with a very sober warning. Verse 29 and 30, you drink judgment to yourself. And for this reason, many are weak and sick and asleep. To approach this table with contempt, to approach this table without seeing what it is, to approach this table if it's just some ordinary thing, you're in trouble. That's what Paul says. God does not God God will not be mocked and dishonored then. This table is a spiritual banquet provided by the Lord for you that you may grow in Jesus. And so this morning we just conclude easily. Tremendously important instructions for us who partake of the Lord's Supper frequently. Because we believe we need Jesus frequently we need to remember when we commune that this table this sacrament proclaims Christ crucified to us visibly second 1 Corinthians 11 tells us we better not partake in an unworthy manner that is we better not be reinforcing our distinctions and enhancing and reinforcing divisions within the body. We better not be acting like selfish Christians and not being a blessing and not being loving and not being contributors to the health and the life and joy and love of the church. Better not do it that way because that's unworthy. And we need to examine ourselves. We need to to ask ourselves, what is it that I'm seeking when I come to this table? Am I just going through the motions? Or am I coming here to commune with my Lord and receive his life into me. And to be united unto him. And to experience the joy of my salvation. If that's your approach is when you come to this table, you'll be blessed. You'll be honoring the Lord. And it will be like the Apostle Paul says, not for the worse, but for the better. Let's pray.